C.S. Lewis, one of the foremost Christian thinkers of the past century, wrote, quote, I believe in Christianity as I believe that the sun has risen, not only because I see it, but because by it I see everything else, end quote. It is the light of Jesus' resurrection that shines moral good into the historical folds of the centuries. The only truly enlightened people of this world were the ones who ran out of darkness to kneel before their Creator. And it is in His presence that we can look around us and truly see things as they are. It's Saturday, June 5th, 2021, and today we are taking a look at the following top stories. Rising job openings, lack of workers and inflation, the compatibility of woke graduates with real-work workplaces, we take a look at the recent news from Apple and Amazon, then we review the Harrison-Biden administration foreign relation trips, and finally we take a look at the implications of the Keystone Pipeline XL project shutdown. <laughs> Welcome to Lifering, a podcast where we strive to provide you with a well-rounded review of what is going on in the world between Monday and Friday of this past week. My name is Alex, and I am joined this week by my friend and co-host for the show, Vadim. Hello. Hi, Vadim. How are you doing? Uh, not too bad. It's a beautiful day. It is. It's a great weather here in Washington. I was going to be in Portland this weekend, but that didn't work out. It's going to rain there, so like for the most part. Mm. Uh, but there's this large family reunion that's happening there. Yeah, and we're supposed to kind of go, but it, we decided not to. To see all your in-laws? Yeah. It's like you're only going to meet people in the park for like one day. And then you either have to stay in a hotel or, you know, go back. I mean, you could stay with relatives as well, but that's... Oh, know. yeah. Someone someone will offer to let yeah. you stay for sure. Well, to you, our listener, thank you for sharing with others about the show. It's good to know that we have some new listeners, not just here in our state, but uh, quite a few other states as well. Texas, Nevada, Virginia, Ohio, California. Yeah, those are the top ones. So yeah, thank you for listening and sharing with others. Um, oh, and a few of you decided to give us a review on Apple Podcasts. Uh, thank you. It's really great to know that you think our show is worth all five stars. And if you haven't uh, done it already, then feel free to do it right now. And as you're doing that, let us take a look as usual at our COVID briefing before we get to our top five this week. <laughs> All right, so India apparently had a record uh, total number of daily COVID deaths earlier this week. Uh, it's it's not like this was the record for all time, just in recent. Like, So they've seen a huge drop in cases. They've also seen a huge drop in deaths till about a week ago. Now, for some reason, deaths are going up. So that's India still fighting the fight of COVID. Uh, Johnson & Johnson vaccines are expiring it says that the fda has extended expiration dates by six weeks for doses of johnson and johnson vaccines because millions of them are probably going to be wasted by the end of this month if they're not going to be used so i don't know how <laughs> so hold on they extended Wait, they what <laughs> it's the same it's the same doses but they just extended the vaccine dates yeah or expiration dates hey that's that's totally okay right you just <laughs> you just changed the label, I guess. That doesn't sound right, but I don't know enough about expiration dates to to argue I, it, I guess. Yeah, I, th this is, I mean, that's crazy. Yeah, so vaccination uh, efforts have been slow. Biden still has has his, you know, 4th of July goal of 70%. We're not there yet. Still a, hovering a, a little bit above 50. Apparently, the city of Seattle is at 70%. 
Yep. And so are most um, coastal cities on the east side as well. 70 might have been a goal for bigger cities. I don't know so much for the country. But we'll see. Fourth of July is what a month away. Highly contagious Delta variant continues to be an issue as it seems to be responsible for a smaller fraction of new cases in the U.S. and U.K. Uh, this is according to Need to Know. So last week I was talking about how they're going to use new names for COVID variants and they're not going to use the naming of... Yeah, that doesn't seem to be happening. What do you mean? Delta's a letter of the... <laughs> <laughs> so that's the UK variant, isn't it? I, or no, hold on. That's I, I don't South know which Africa? One it is. I, I think Delta's a, a letter. Though. Oh, they got me there. <laughs> okay, hold on. Let me now look it up. So Delta variant. <laughs> First detected in India. So I guess Delta's the formerly known as the India variant. Yeah, that's fast. Do you know your Greek alphabet, though? The, no. <laughs> Alpha, beta, gamma, delta, upsilon. Uh, We've gotten we, that far. We learned it in... Uh, I, ha- I, I studied it as when studying Greek. I can recognize it. I read Greek, but I don't. I cannot name the alphabet. Did uh, you think delta was like the airline company or something? I have no idea what I thought. Olympics uh, in Tokyo are still going to happen, at least so far. Uh, the committee says that 80% of Tokyo-bound Athletes have already been vaccinated. Now they're going to have a bunch of restrictions, which we'll probably cover in lightning round. Probably going to be the most restrictive Olympic Games you've seen. Now I need to know also um, reports that infants may be eligible for a vaccine starting in the fall. Pfizer said it will begin testing their vax in infants as young as six months in the coming weeks, while it continues to test kids ages 5 through 12. The results of the trial will be available in the fall. And it's kind of scary because, according to NBC, evidence grows stronger for COVID vaccine linked to heart issue. Basically, new data shows that uh, there's a higher than expected number of teen boys and young men experiencing heart inflammation after their second dose of Moderna or Pfizer shots. Most cases occur within a week of vaccination. More than half of the cases reported to the vaccine reporting system were in people between 12 and 24. Yeah, there was this doctor that got under fire for uh, speaking out against actually bringing up the issue, I guess, before it became mainstream. And the thing is, this was uh, because this is recent development. And he was talking about the heart inflammation issues way before that. Now, he's been he's still being ridiculed publicly and in the media and debunked, you know, because he's he's speaking against the vaccine. Well, that's all for today's uh, COVID brief. Now, let's get to our top five. All right, let's tackle some economy news this week. This is usually a boring topic reserved for economists themselves, financial gurus, statisticians, and everybody who likes to talk about those things. Those people who actually invest considerable amount of time into understanding the clockwork that's going on underneath the U.S. economy. But you know what's interesting? They're also the people who stand to gain from their understanding, from their knowledge. They're usually the guys and gals who get the financial reward for investing into the boring subject. So I don't think... I can make this subject more colorful and exciting, but I can tell you this. We ought to have at least a basic grasp on what is going on in the economy because it directly affects us daily. And understanding what's going on will help us not to just blame Biden and liberals for what changes are happening in the country today, but it will allow us to have a solid, hopefully solid reasoning and explanation as to why they are to be blamed. Anyway, so we're reopening, right? And yet, despite the record number of open jobs, companies apparently can't find enough people to fill them. And more workers are quitting than ever. That's according to MarketWatch. 
So it looks like we have a problem of biblical proportions. I'm thinking of the time when Jesus said once to his disciples, the harvest is plentiful, but the laborers are few. Now I'm stretching the concept here. The passage from the Bible, you know, is not really related to jobs market of today, but maybe just in one aspect. And that that is that there's a lot of work for Christians, but not a lot of Christians willing to do the work or are ready to do go do the work. Which, which is usually because they're busy or preoccupied with something else or just not willing to leave their current lifestyle. They're just comfortable where they're at. So in that sense, maybe it could be stretched. What's, what would be, in the allegory, what would be the equivalent of unemployment checks? I don't know, the comfortable church pews, <laughs> awesome programs, right, that keep us in, in our churches instead of going out in the fields. Or, or maybe just just laziness. Now, I think something similar is going on with our jobs market today. We do have a record number of job openings, but no one wants to go to work. Here's Andy Puzder, former CEO of CKE Restaurants, summarizing the problem of jobs on Fox News. Well, I think right now what the, the biggest impact is from paying people not to work. You know, I, In case there are progressive economists listening, I want to say if you pay people not to work, they're probably not going to work. So we end up with 7.6 million fewer people employed than we had before the pandemic. But we've got 9.3 million job openings, which is a record high. Actually, April, uh, March was a record high with 8.3 million, which I thought was a huge number. And then it goes to 9.3 million in April, uh, the month after this uh, this this $300, uh, you know, don't go to work bonus takes effect the next month. Not only do you see 9.3 million job openings, but the economy creates 700,000 fewer jobs than the economists were projecting. So this isn't rocket science. If you pay people not to work, they're not going to work. See, it's not rocket science, right? We have 7.6 million less people employed than before the pandemic. So like at this point in time versus before pandemic began, we have a loss of 7.6 million of workforce. You would expect that if given the chance, the people, you know, can go to work today, especially since we've seen this rise, you know, of minimum wage for many companies, you know, climbing to 20s an hour, uh, plus all the new perks and all the, you know, that the companies are adding all the, I guess, advertisement around, you know, jobs and reopening. And yet we see 9.6 million job openings that are unfilled today. And then the $300 that he was talking about, that's, I believe, the advanced payment of child tax credit, which that you would usually get it at the end of the year. They're just essentially giving it up in payments to you. Uh, I think up to half of it because the other half, I think you still receive. So it's not like you're really getting, I mean, this is not, you're not getting new money with this. You're just getting the same amount that you would. And yet it keeps people at home because somebody mentioned somewhere that it's close to like 25 an hour with all the benefits, like unemployment plus this tax credit that, that's coming in. It's up to like 22, 25 an hour to just stay at home, especially if you have like two parents with a few kids, both of you unemployed, you're just bawling. And you could do this for, you know, as long as the pandemic lasts. Even with this huge number of job openings, we were still 700,000 short of Biden's economist prediction. You're right about that. People get complacent, they get lazy, and they have like a confirmation bias. Or if they hear something that maybe discourages people from getting back to work, they'll kind of be on board with it. Like, oh yeah, that makes sense. That makes sense. Uh, And I, I could definitely see that. I mean, there's just no incentive for them to go back to work right now because they're taken care of still by the government till this point. When the pandemic is almost non-existent, 
like it's it's gone, right? People are back to normal at this point. Yeah, I mean the the original incentive to flatten the curve so that our hospitals remain open. We were talking about the limited amount of respirators and things like that in ICU units. Mm-hmm. Um, like I don't I don't hear that really coming up anymore. Yep, and yet people are you know still. We have 9.6 million job openings. Nobody wants to take them. What about your job? You want to talk about your job? How's it been for you throughout the pandemic? I guess reflecting back on it and maybe how it is today. Well, the work I do is a little bit uh, different from maybe some of the highest impacted companies. Like, you know, you have restaurants and stuff where uh, profit margins are really slim. And so you're really counting on people to... Uh, you know, constantly having tiny, um, I mean, I say tiny, but some of the transactions are really small. Like customers come in, they pay like, you know, whatever, hundred bucks, mm-hmm. uh, eat out and, and leave. Uh, versus like construction work is, you know, you secure a bid. Those transactions are thousands, if not hundreds of thousands, sometimes millions of dollars. And so uh, it's just a matter of, you know, the the projects are lined up. You just need people to come and uh, to, to come and do the work. There wasn't much incentive for the owners of the company themselves to actually tell people to stay home. Hmm. Um, Did you have to file for unemployment at any point? Yeah. So that so that first two weeks mm-hmm. uh, of lockdown, where mm-hmm. flattened the curve, whatever, um, you know, everybody kind of stayed home. And so for a lot of the companies, that was enough to make them start firing people if they didn't come back after that two weeks. Yeah. So unemployment benefits, right, is something that Republican states have been dropping like a scorching piece of coal. But now we see this 300 per kid thing come in and it's really sad. The government intervention has become the panacea for all problems. But historically, it only offsets the problem elsewhere. Someone somewhere will have to pay. They essentially are taking more of our money to do the things that we apparently can't do ourselves while also handing them out to those who don't want to work while in the process causing the economy to adjust the perceived uptick in buying power. Because more money is pumped into the economy right now, it will only keep driving the inflation up. And it's already at its highest levels. According to Axios, consumer consumer prices rose last month by 5% compared to May of 2020, marking the biggest year-over-year gain since August 2008. They continue on... Prices were 0.6% higher in May than they were in April. So it's not like it's jumped and it's maybe going down. We're still seeing an uptick and it just keeps going up and up and now it's at its highest level. This article interestingly pointed out that the data itself could add to the problem, basically by inducing this self-fulfilling cycle as a result of panic and fear. People feel it, so they rush to buy and then there's more demand and that drives up the cost and so on. Did you notice an uptick in prices? Like your, I don't know, your personal shopping, does it affect you? Gas is probably the biggest one. Yeah. They're also saying in this Access article that used vehicles, uh, prices increased 7.3% month over month in May. Used vehicle prices increased 7.3% over month over month in May. On the heels of a 10% monthly gain in April, since a year ago, used vehicles are now 29.7% more expensive. I guess that's good because I'm about to sell two of my used cars. One is being repaired right now, and and I have a truck that I don't use. It's an older truck, but if it's thirty percent more expensive right now, I wonder though this is this is reflecting more like the dealership used prices, right? Yeah, let us know how that goes because <laughs> I've I think I've sold two in the last year. Mm-hmm. I didn't like get rich off of it. I don't know. If, I really didn't notice like an uptick in prices, and yeah. people are maybe demanding more, but I don't think they're like closing deals. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Maybe, yeah. But as you say, like it's probably it has to do with dealerships. Dealerships, yeah. Here's some other increases. Food prices rose 0.4% in May. 
that's compared to 0.4% gain in April. They're 2.2% higher than a year ago. Energy costs are 28% higher over the last 12 months. Apparel has gone up 5.6% since this time last year. Medical care commodities was the only category that saw a decrease from a year ago, dropping 1.9%. The problem is most people didn't get a raise of 5%. And all the benefits they're receiving in the meantime, they will have to be paid back by the regular folks for years to come. And they're going to be in form of higher prices for everything. So for this year, we're going to receive some benefits, but the price that we pay is inflation that will last for years and years. Business Insider this week had an article titled, Chipotle has hiked prices across its menu by about 4% as wages and ingredients get more expensive. They go on to say the higher prices means the average Chipotle meal will cost about 30 to 40 cents more. Also last month, the chain said that they would raise its hourly wage to an average $15 per hour by the end of June. At the time, Chipotle's CFO, Jack Hartung, warned the company would have to increase prices to offset the higher pay. So you increase the pay because you're woke now or need to outbid the unemployment benefits or the stimulus check. And then in turn, you raise the prices of the food, which in the end is bought by the people who just got a raise without any benefit because the prices went up. Nice. Makes sense. As I was going through the news stories, an article caught my attention. An op-ed written for Wall Street Journal by the editor of First Things magazine, Rusty Reno. Here's the title. Why I Stopped Hiring Ivy League Graduates. Now, Reno is not just a guy with an opinion. He's a guy with a hiring power for this widely circulated Christian magazine. And he, quote, used to jump at the chance to hire from Ivy Leagues. But now it turns him off applicants. Why such a change? Why now? Well, I suppose it's not surprising that we've reached a culminating point with the academic ideologies overspilling into our daily lives. Colleges, universities, which again, no surprise, were historically lean left, at this point are not just another stream in the political view of today. They are the growing mainstream. As droves of students in the past decade have made the push to alter the society as we know it. In this article, he says... If students can be traumatized by insensitivity on that leafy campus, then they're unlikely to function as effective team members in an organization that has to deal with everyday realities. And in any event, I don't want to hire someone who makes inflammatory accusations at a drop of a hat. Basically, he goes on to say that wokeism, if I may put it that way, ruins these kids, like these students. And Rusty Reno opened up a good can of worms, I think, with this article. He points to something that sticks out like a sore thumb, but cancel culture, the all-seeing eye is watching. And so most keep their thoughts to themselves. Now, I wouldn't argue against healthy reformation, which in a sense is always returned to the roots, to the foundation, to the beginnings. It's rethinking in terms of objective truth. It's the return to the intent, the purpose and design of mankind by God. But as we analyzed a few episodes ago, current development and direction of critical theory and its branch of critical race theory, is wrought with holes and is being blindly carried on despite little to no practical evidence of its long-term effectiveness. On the contrary, it hasn't dealt with the major issues of it being implemented, you know, as has been evidenced by the socialist and communist countries. And yet, any dissent from mainstream is almost sacrilegious. Have you heard of dimitude? Not the word, but maybe... Yeah, I, I haven't heard of it before, but dimi apparently is, is a Muslim word for... It literally means protected person. So I was reading it refers to the state's obligation under Sharia to protect the individual's life, property, as well as freedom of religion 
in exchange for loyalty to the state and payment of the tax. But the idea is that this dimi gives Christians and other religions a protection. Basically, you don't get killed as long as you pay taxes and you keep quiet. And that's what this guy is, is writing in this article, you know, and is saying that essentially these students are living under this kind of second-class feeling, right? That nobody's going to cancel them so long as they don't speak up against the regime. He, he goes on to say, quote, But in the past decades, dimitude has become widespread. Normal kids at elite universities keep their heads down. Over the course of four years, this can become a subtle but real habit of obeisance, a condition of moral and spiritual surrender. Now, I, I wonder, you know, myself, if increasing pressure on the students has resulted in their outburst of, you know, feeling oppressed or feeling the oppression by the system. You know, their, all their protests. I wonder if it's a psychological response to just being constantly pushed where they initially did not want to go. I mean, but at this point, they, do you get what I'm saying? Because they're oppressed to feel on, to think only liberally, they're feeling that pressure. Now, they're conforming to it. They're going along with it. But I wonder if it psychologically underneath creates this feeling like something is just not the way I mm. want it to be. I don't know. It's just this. He goes on to say that some resist it, obviously. And he goes to say that they would be ideal for my organization, which aims to speak uh, for religious and social conservatives. But then he says, but even this kind of graduate brings liabilities to the workplace because uh, they exhibit post-traumatic stress disorder. Uh, others have developed a habit of aggressive counterpunching that is no more appealing in a young employee than ruthless accusations of the woke. Now, now you went to college a few years ago. What was your experience like? Well, my experience might be a little bit different from the people that went to uh, like bigger universities uh, that are around. I only went to a small community college here uh, in our hometown. My political science teacher was was a bit of an interesting case. So she's uh, so she claims to be a Muslim. Uh, she was Indian descent, growing up under apartheid in South Africa. Already, like a whole a whole like, kaleidoscope in, in terms of background. And so obviously, like the stuff she was teaching in the class is not congruent with Muslim faith. And so you start to think about the main thing I remember from that was just thinking like how incongruent is that? Uh, where I almost think that she was teaching it like to where it's like oh like these like these western kids these infidels <laughs> let's teach them some radical ideology um so like i don't know i was talking to a friend of mine she's an educator herself uh she's working today in the system and so we spoke about the college and the recent amplification of these leftist ideologies and she says the amount of wokeness that is being dropped on the students today has been has seen a steady increase recently and she says reading through the material she has to take breaks because it's so uh, overwhelming. You know, it's, it's overtly and unapologetically dogmatic. Uh, she says that staff today is versus what it was in the past uh, is completely different because they continue to hire people who align more with the ideologies. So will Rusty Reno hire any prestigious college graduates at all? Here's his answer to that question on Fox and Friends this past Wednesday. Well, I wouldn't say I won't. I would just say that Ten years ago, I would have seen that as a big positive on their resume, mm -hmm. and now I see it as a negative that they have to overcome in the interview. And because you know, obviously, there's going to be great kids at, at all all over in higher ed and at all different schools. But I, I, because I found that you know, back in the day, what was a negative of these elite kids? Sense of entitlement, arrogance, 
you know, they want to read, write the lead editorial mm -hmm. on day one rather than do proofreading. Right. But, you know, hey, that's you can work with that because uh, it reflects positives, which are confidence and ambition. These are good things. But now I'm seeing these young people that they have, to be frank, a kind of distorted view of reality. I mean, pronouns, worrying about pronouns. I mean, how can you get work done if everybody's tiptoeing around the office worried about setting, you know, triggering someone? Sure. And, and so I think that that's, that's, uh, that's a big change, I think, in the last decade uh, for me to sort of look at, meet and interview students and go, wow, I don't really want to hire them. This is, they've been damaged. That's the problem that their view of the world is distorted, right? And if that's the only view they have, then there's a clash between real life and real world and the progressive ideals. And that's why he's saying they're not ready for the marketplace, for the real work. He went on to say, a few years ago, a student in Ivy League school told me, the first thing you learn in your freshman year is never to say what you are thinking. Uh, the institution he attended claims to train world's future leaders. From what that young man reports, the opposite is true. The school is training future self-censors, which means future followers. W what else can you, you know, f future self-censors, what else can you ask for as a wannabe authoritarian government, right? And what do we do if the next generation doesn't value conformity factory, doesn't want to go to college, doesn't feel like it needs a degree? Well, according to Biden, you do two things. You forgive the students' debts, to drive interest in college again, and then you make college free. Do you personally yourself have a issue with uh, free college? I don't know because it's a good incentive. I think if certain programs could be free, free college is never free. Uh, what it means is now we're going to have to all cover the cost for anybody and anyone. Oh yeah, for sure. College and, professors are some of the most prestigious, right? some of the most highest paid people in the nation. Exactly, and and so are the campuses. Like think about the even the sports arena for each you know, college, like they put a lot of money into that. And then you've got students who barely make, you know, 40 grand a year after they spent, you know, four years at the university. And they still have to spend half of their life to pay off the debt. The other thing is the value of education will drop because now everybody has access to it. And so you could, you could go study, but then you can also drop out in the middle of it if you feel like you want to start on a YouTube channel or a podcast for that reason, you know, <laughs> I don't know, some... Some other project that you, you feel like, you know, is well worth your time because you just got enlightened in a class that you didn't like. Now, if you really want to be truly woke, I've said that word so many times throughout the program today. Here's some ancient advice. I quote from the letter written to Ephesians by Paul, where he says, Awake, O sleeper, and arise from the dead, and Christ will shine on you. Look carefully then how you walk, not as unwise, but as wise, making the best use of time because the days are evil. Christians got to stay woke in Christ and spend your time wisely. That includes education, degrees, courses, podcasts. Education is colorblind and amoral, meaning it's, it cares less about morality. It has no pretense to political views. It's as much of a tool as it is a weapon. And education is not the problem, obviously. The problem comes when people depart from their purpose and embark on this search of something better than God than the idea of creator who governs the universe. Then we have a problem in education. So here's a good quote by Walker Percy. Percy. By Walker Percy. That might sound funny, but don't underestimate it. It has this reflection in real life. It goes like this. You can get all A's and still flunk life. All right, for this third segment, I wanted to take a look at the trending stories in big tech. 
Apple just had its annual conference. Worldwide Developers Conference. Yeah, that. And it's essentially where they show their new software. In this case, it was iOS 15, uh, Mac OS 12, which they called Monterey, uh, the Watch OS 8, iPad OS 15, and all of this is going to be available as public betas in July. And then by fall, probably everybody will have it on their devices. At this moment, you can still play with them. If you're a developer, you could download them. And if you're building apps, you could do that. You're not an Apple user, Vadim. Uh, nope. Anything from the conference highlights that stood out to you as useful or a neat feature? I don't know about useful. They're, they're all really neat. I've lived my life just fine so far without all these features. But some of them are really cool. Um, I like the idea that you can FaceTime someone without... Um, Without an iPhone, you can, yeah, like you can take pictures of yeah, the, like the whiteboard thing where you can take picture and then you copy and paste it, uh, you know, like handwritten stuff. Uh, the maps are really, really attractive. You know, augmented reality. I don't see myself like lavishing in that feature just because I'm. Whenever I'm using maps, I just want to, like, I study it for a little bit, memorize the turns, and then I just go. Well, you I, don't, know, I don't like using You know navigation. what I liked about the map? That they now have the bridge. So when you're passing bridges, they now have it in 3D displayed so that you could see, okay, this leads road you know, goes up at the top and this one is on the bottom and these two bridges are connecting. I think that's what's neat because you actually can now see it in 3D as you approach it and not be like, okay, do I take this one? Did I take the right exit? You kind of see where the road goes because you can see it from above. Well, one of the other things I liked is the... Um, uh, the Wallet is going to, they're working to include ID in there, right? So the only thing that I carry in my wallet, which is in the back of my phone, is the ID and my debit card. But by now, my debit card is in my Apple Pay, so I don't really need it. I use it out of convenience. And But if my ID is going to be and my cards are in here, then potentially you just need the phone. That's all. Oh, and the final one was the universal control. That was pretty neat. So we already can share between Apple device and an iPhone. Like I can open a page in Firefox here and then open it in my computer if I want to. Seamless switching. But it, this was shown that like you could drag the mouse between your iPad and your Mac and your iMac, which is next level. Yeah, I think there's something to be said for Apple making things really cohesive and easy to use. And I think that's like... Because that's one of the hardest things to figure out. Like if you're projecting a screen or something and you're like oh like how how do i make that big or like you know any like simple task you want to do like here you just move the cursor over and then you're on there yeah like that's pretty cool i think one of the you know the coolest thing about this whole progress that's been made is how we're slowly erasing the boundaries of technological constraints so we began with these boxes that reflected something of how we understood the logical way of running programs then it became more and more user intuitive, meaning you know we're we're using the term mouse. We're you know we're we have file you know with our not, you're not typing code anymore. Basically, you have an interface to work with, and now we're going further and further to where we're interacting essentially as we would with the real life, right? Like you would expect many times, I would want to just take the mouse and move it from one computer to another. Uh, and there's programs that actually can do that. We, we, we've done it in the past. But like when it's now part of the, like it's the feature, it's like the, the basic feature, that's neat. Welcome to the lightning round where we go through some of the main headlines on our cutting room floor and uh, provide quick commentary. So the French president, Emmanuel Macron, was uh, shaking hands with members of the public on Tuesday, and um, there was a man who uh, slapped him 
in the face. On Thursday, he was sentenced to four months in prison for uh, assaulting a public official. So this obviously brings a lot of attention to the far rights groups in France. The guy was like, when I was reading the article, the guy was like, he didn't, he's like, when I saw his smiling, lying face, I couldn't resist the urge. So <laughs> he pretty much slapped him on impulse, apparently. It wasn't like it was premeditated, you know, like, right. and that's probably why he got four months out of the way it would have been for decades. Or El Salvador has officially uh, voted to adopt Bitcoin as legal tender. So I guess that means like, stores and stuff like businesses have to accept it yeah i'm just wondering how like is, does the country have the infrastructure to that means everything has to be digital so what are you buying new machines or is everybody using phones you know that, that's that would be my question i guess yeah it's pretty crazy because like out of all the countries like why is it el salvador it, it says even that so bukele is the president and he said that uh in one of the conversations they were having that the country is designing a law that um <laughs> They would give you a permanent residency to any individual that invests three Bitcoin into El Salvador's economy. They're they're going all in. Yeah, that's a good deal. According to Charleston Gazette Mail, the Democrats in Congress have proposed a sweeping election reform bill called for the People Act. Now, it's an 800-page bill that has garnered zero Republican support. And now Joe Manchin, a Democratic representative for West Virginia in the U.S. Senate, has said he's not going to be supporting the bill. And... Here's the reason. He says the right to vote is fundamental to our American democracy and protecting that right should not be about party or politics. Least of all, protecting this right, which is, which I, which is a value I share, should never be done in a bipartisan manner. Now, this is problematic for the Democratic Party because they are running right now in a very slim majority. So they can push the bill so long as everybody is on board. The moment somebody tries to step out, uh, it causes problems. Another thing that the Congress accomplished is uh, they voted to make Pulse Nightclub a national memorial. So five years ago. Is that is that the one in Orlando? Yes. In Florida, I don't know this. I mean, I remember the story slightly. I don't know what happened there, but I, I think it was a shooting, right? A mass shooting. It's yeah. just, it was an LGBTQ nightclub. Senator Rick Scott of Florida introduced the Senate bill. Scott was a governor at the time of the massacre which saw 49 clubgoers killed and dozens more wounded before the shooter, Omar Mateen, was killed in a shootout with law enforcement after a three-hour siege, according to NBC News. This is a tough one because making a nightclub a memorial, like we can, we can set up a memorial based, I don't know, on the town, on the name of the massacre, but to set up a nightclub as a memorial with all respect to the families, it just doesn't sound... Yeah, right. I, just, I just want to point out that maybe it's a little bit Islamophobic to uh, to make this uh, national memorial. Because well, no, but this, is, this, guess, incident, in sense, this yeah. incident is not representative of how right. LGBT people are treated in this country as a whole. True, and that's, uh, yeah, that's, I guess, the bigger question of this national memorial. Like, okay. And finally, the recount in Maricopa County that's been ongoing for a few weeks now is probably going to come to an end this week. They're, they were at 1.6 million on Tuesday. Or Wednesday, out of 2.1 million ballots that were cast in Arizona. So we'll probably be hearing the results of that pretty soon. Well, as soon as they put the report together. Do you have any expectations for this report? I don't know if they're going to overturn anything. No, I, I know for sure overturning is not going to happen, they said. But it might, it might sow enough distrust to spark another recount somewhere else. And then in turn, 
validate the new voting laws that have been passed by Republican states. Mm. More on that later. So every year, the Pulitzer Prize is awarded to uh, some of the most important pieces of journalism. And this year, someone who's uh, not a professional but has had a big impact is uh, Darnella Frazier, who filmed the death of George Floyd, uh, has received a special citation for the Pulitzer Prize 2021. Not surprising, I suppose. I just think that it diminishes the value of the award if you're going to start giving it out to everyone, whoever, you know, upholds the political. I mean, awards like these are always about sending a message of more than... Accomplishment. Yeah, grandiose achievements or accomplishments. I mean, heck, Nobel Peace Prize. Obama got one for basically good intentions. Uh, So Loki, the series from Marvel Films, came out this week. And uh, Loki is uh, related to Thor, the God of Thunder, familiar character in the Marvel Universe. He's an adoptive brother who was his arch nemesis before becoming anti-hero. On Sunday, a teaser's clip of the new series confirmed the character's gender in a file where Loki's gender was marked as fluid next to sex category. Now, this probably wouldn't matter, but there's going to be a new series out there, and this just goes along with the current. Yeah, I mean, you'd, you'd think it doesn't matter because he's fictional character, a fictional mythological character. It's fairly Once obvious again. that it's meant to like normalize and at least familiarize people with the concept of being gender fluid. So the state of Nevada has agreed to pay a church $175,000 in legal fees after placing restrictions on houses of worship during the COVID-19 pandemic. So this church is Calvary Chapel, Dayton Valley. It's an interesting contrast because we see in Canada, you know, the opposite is happening where the church is having to pay legal fees and, and finding these restrictions and things that basically progress from that. All the basically all the implied powers that police would get basically enforcing these. So in South Africa, in an undisclosed hospital in Pretoria, according to reports, there has been 10 babies born at once, which is called what? De- de- I don't know how to pronounce that. Decouplet babies. It hasn't been confirmed yet, apparently. The family is saying and it says that the news are correct and that, yeah, it's 10 babies. If it is so, 10 babies from one woman, then that would be the first case of decuplets in the world. They're still fighting for their lives, according to the family. Now, the couple also has two twin children. So that would be 12 children total. So there's a woman in Pennsylvania that's been charged in a murder-for-hire plot after allegedly trying to have her husband killed. Uh, the thing is, she tried to... She talked to, like, an undercover detective that was pretending to be a hitman, and so she paid him five $20 bills, and then, like, as a as a down payment, I guess, and then said that she would pay $100 uh, in weekly installments for the next 40 weeks. Well, she's going to get the child tax credit. Oh, okay. 300 a month, so... <laughs> that just seems like... Yeah, it's just... Right I've never heard of anyone financing an assassin. That's So the undercover cop did not follow through? Well, he followed through with whatever needed to happen to arrest her, I guess, right. but... It's a sad story, actually. So from the world of automobiles, automotive, there's two news. Both are related to Elon Musk. Number one is Boring Loop is finally transporting passengers in Las Vegas. It only takes you to the convention center or whatever it's called, wherever the loop goes to. So yeah, you you can actually go and go through the loop. But I think you have to be in a Tesla in order to go through it, at least for the time being. And then the second news is that there was a new model S Plaid was released uh, by Tesla. Which is like the higher version, I guess, of their sedan. It costs one hundred thirty thousand. What is it called? The plaid? Is it like plaid seats? No, actually, it's it's white inside. It's it's pretty cool looking. Goes to zero 
from 0 to 60 in under 2 seconds. It's the quickest production vehicle ever made. It has a special radiator design to where this thing can go 0 to 60 like multiple times, one after another, right, without overheating. Uh, The range is 390, and here's the cool part. It takes 15 minutes to fully recharge, as long as it would take you to... Like take a coffee break or something. Yeah, that's fifteen clo- minutes. That's close to f- enough to like a regular fill up. Yeah, that, that's what I'm saying. Is, is it, I mean, one hundred thirty thousand dollars. The less powerful version is eighty thousand dollars, right? And they're actually going to release immediately. So there's like twenty five cars already done and available at the time of the release. And uh, yeah, the production will begin immediately. I think at first it will be like oh no, a thousand per week. So it seems that um, Jeff Bezos' company Blue Origin is. All set to blast into space next month uh, on a crewed flight, and Jeff Bezos is uh, wants a piece of the action, and he's going to actually be on that flight. Yeah, there's somebody joining him now, pledging 28 million. A mystery bidder has won an auction to join them on suborbital ride, according to NPR. It's going to last 11 minutes, so basically 2.5 million per minute, hmm. or if you want to put it in a different perspective, 42 thousand dollars per second. Oh yeah, remember that pipeline? colonial pipeline hack well turns out the hackers got hacked and the payment was actually reversed most of it was recovered which was linked to i think russians so the news came out this week that uh, the company was able to get most of its money back how the turntables so the euro 2020 uh, football championship is underway and uh, we've seen uh, we've seen teams like the uk and belgium and wales take a knee in solidarity with the black lives matter movement uh, the Croatian national football team has come out and um, announced that they will not take a knee before matches. So that's the statement they're making. I didn't know that the whole knee bending thing spread beyond U.S. I didn't know either. Well, and finally, the Olympics are happening in Tokyo, but there's like a bunch of rules for the players that are going to be going there. Well, number one is vaccines will be available, but they're not required. Uh, number two, and this is according to NPR, athletes will be tested early and they'll be tested often. They also cannot hug or high five. I don't know if they can elbow bump. They can't play tourist or in other words, they cannot be touring the Japan while there. They can't really do anything besides preparing and competing. They also must wear masks almost all the time unless they're eating, drinking, sleeping, training, or competing. They are expected to be masked. And foreign media may be tracked by GPS. Yeah, this is, I mean, this brings attention to the fact that Japan's a really interesting place. They're very serious about their rules, huh? Well, yeah, but Japan just seems like a... I don't want to open up a can of words. Okay. But, yeah. Well, that's all for the stories in the lightning round. Well, to all of our listeners, I would just like to uh, welcome you back to the final section of this show. Our final two stories. Uh, first one's going to be talking a little bit about the heads of our state. So President Biden attended the G7 summit this week, and it was understandably awkward and... Uh, Probably social distance. Yeah. But his second in command, Vice President Kamala Harris, has been on her own foreign diplomacy missions. Uh, this is important to keep track of because although she's already made history, no doubt, as the first woman of color to be vice president, uh, for some people, this fact alone seems to be enough to dispel any criticism of how she conducts herself or what policy she pushes to implement. Uh, but despite this, uh, we ask you to keep an open mind and to be able to view her performance objectively. I think these trips are a great litmus test if she um, if she could go to a place where nobody cares about her, um, the racial milestone she represents and just, uh, just talk policy. So her destinations are 
Guatemala and Mexico to speak with the presidents of both countries, different politicians too, but we're just going to focus on the, the hearings with the presidents, I guess. Her intention was to tackle root causes of the migration issue uh, that we're having in the U.S., which, to be fair, it's been a tough assignment for, you know, the last few decades. But certainly it hasn't been made easier by the executive orders signed by Biden within days of being sworn in. So, oh, by the way, she still hasn't visited the border since Biden dumped the whole mess into her hands. So, so far, he's entrusted her with uh, two main tasks, with the fighting the voting integrity initiatives and the border crisis. It's a lot of responsibility for your number two. But Kamala Harris is no quitter, not one to take no for an answer just as she uh, got into the vice president position after receiving 7% support in her home state of California during primaries. Astounding. Uh, anyway, here she goes on a diplomatic mission, first to Guatemala, then to Mexico. As she lands in Guatemala, the reception she's met with is, uh, I think, a little bit different than she expected. Uh, when she landed, she was met with pro-Trump Guatemalans holding signs that said, Kamala, go home, and Trump won. Referring, of course, to the recent elections, there was also people expressing that, you know, Guatemala is a narco state and that, you know, U.S. government should stop basically funding that. Apparently, many people are against the foreign aid from the U.S. that lines corrupt politician pockets. And when the president of Guatemala spoke, I detected kind of a similar line of thinking. Um, during that conference, you know, uh, President Giamate uh, said he wants to be able to extradite coyotes uh, to the U.S. for prosecution. And before Twitter gets a hold of this, uh, by coyotes, I don't mean the animals. So he wants to basically extradite these people, the people that they, you know, at least catch uh, to the U.S. to be prosecuted. Uh, and that's interesting to me because there's a huge outcry here uh, to reform the police system and turn it upside down. Whereas in countries like Guatemala, it's uh, like it's beyond their wildest dreams of effectiveness. Well, yeah, that sounds funny because he's trying to bring more work to his own country by extraditing those coyotes, essentially? Because they, they should be focusing on their own, right? Well, it's like and, I, what you would expect is that he would ask for more money or something. Like, it's like, oh, like we have these social programs, like we're trying to, like, trying to pull ourselves up by our bootstraps or anything. It's like, no, like we need people, like we need effective punishment for criminals here. Wow. I mean, maybe he was trying to make a statement. I don't know. But that, okay. Yeah, that's interesting, though. So, so Giamate, he focused on human traffickers, drug traffickers, as kind of uh, some of these root causes of the immigration crisis, whereas Kamala, you know, made her speech about economy and climate. Um, they came away agreeing on the issue, but disagreeing on solutions. How does that cause it? What, what are climate migrants? Well, I think, like, what she meant was... Um, so she made a statement back in April, I guess, is that, you know, extensive storm damage, uh, droughts in areas where agriculture is important, you know, things like food scarcity. So basically, like the, the climate change is starving them out of their countries is, is what is the implication that she's making. Okay. Uh, when she got to Mexico, uh, it was a little bit similar. They mostly talked about uh, mostly talked about corruption in the Northern Triangle. So that's Guatemala, Honduras, El Salvador. Uh, but the meeting was mostly symbolic, in my opinion, because the elections in Mexico, I don't know if you've been following much on that, but like there's a there's like people getting assassinated, people that are running for presidency. There's been like 35 candidates that have been murdered uh, by, I'm guessing, like cartels and gangs and stuff. That's crazy to me. Uh, so there's no, uh, you know, if, in all these talks, you know, with the elections coming up, like there's no expectation of, I guess, uh, of consistency or like a, a pledge of any kind. There's a big dark cloud looming over Mexican politics right now. Yeah. And that's in addition to global COVID effects right, on every country. You, you got to deal with that, which, you know, the economy is affected by that. I mean, Mexico is probably also affected by the tourism industry, right? 
Mm-hmm. So you, it just all compounds. And, of course, their history of violent crimes. Yeah, so Mexico's kind of a loose cannon at this point in terms of uh, how how stable they are in their uh, in their politics, in their diplomacy. You know, how do you think these meetings went? Are, are we focusing on maybe the wrong things? She creeps me out a bit. When I was watching today a video of her uh, talking about the border, there's a guy sitting interviewing her. He's like, you haven't been to the border yet. She's like, <laughs> I haven't been to Europe. I don't know how that makes sense <laughs> or something like that. Like, I don't know what you're trying yeah. to get at. <laughs> Yeah, yeah way, way to destroy them with facts and logic. <laughs> sure. I haven't been to Europe yet. Uh, the funny thing is, like, that was on NBC, and that's not even, like, a. <laughs> they weren't even trying to trap her. It's like, asking yeah, what. Normal question. You saw it, too? Yeah. So, it, it's been an interesting trip. <laughs> Apparently, on the plane, she was handing out cookies that look like her. And there's a picture, and it's, like, the frosting. The frosting, like, shows her hair, and then her, like... Uh, that's weird. Her, her, like, the pearl necklace and the earrings. <laughs> Like, Siri, what does narcissism look like? Well, there was a tweet by her in 2017. It was something like, say it loud, say it clear, everyone is welcome here. I know that was 2017. Very poetic. Yeah, a while back, it rhymed. This time around, the message was, do not come. And it was like multiple, she she said it multiple times, do not come, do Mm -hmm. not come. And so which one is it? Is it, you know, everyone is welcome here, which is what we've been hearing also, not just since 2017, that's been kind of the message of the White House. And, you know, what about the humane treatment? Uh, Jen Psaki made it clear that's the stance of the current administration. But then you go to Guatemala and you say, do not come here. I, I just don't see the that lining up. And also, like, who's responsible? I mean, you said that Biden gave her this voting restrictions and border. Whenever the reporters would ask who's responsible for it, there's always, you know, just finger pointing and nobody knows who's responsible for it because she hasn't been to the border yet. And why hasn't she been to the border yet? So she's trying to deal with the root cause in Guatemala, not even once setting foot at our border where the people are actually, you know, dealing with this surge of migrants. Here's the deal. Guatemala did not vote for her and probably wouldn't. But our people did. And so did people in Texas, whether, you know, I mean, she was elected by our country. So you would think that her first responsibility would be to show up at our border assess the situation, right? See for herself what kind of strain it's causing. Actually visit the cages that they were, you know, telling Trump that he's keeping kids in there. See for herself what they're doing, their administration doing. Then maybe her words would have some weight. Yeah, I mean, people um, kind of speak up in, in defense of uh, Kamala Harris. It's like, why why does she need to be at the border? Like, that's just a PR stunt people do to seem like they care. Well, it's like things have radically changed since. But isn't that what the whole administration has been doing, PR stunt? Like, that's the thing that, that that's their line of work. Most of the things that a president does, he does so because it has national significance he'll show up and say a speech and it and it you know it moves things forward or it inspires people or it changes things for sure and i think that these meetings are a great example of that you know they're it's lip service and nothing more this is the administration saying that you know hey look at these priorities uh, they're basically like proclaiming these priorities and uh, this is how hard we're trying to solve the problem as we already mentioned these root causes have been outstanding for decades um, the inflammation of the issue, though, with uh, 
you know, just in the month of April, we had 178,000 migrants enter the southern border. This is the main thing that pertains to us as a nation, in my opinion. Uh, all the talk is just a PR stunt to avoid, deflect the issue. There are real issues going on in Central and South America with corruption, uh, violence, obviously foreign involvement in the revolutions. You know, people like AOC want to criticize the U.S. government for being involved. Um, but the fact of the matter is, like, those, a lot of those elections were not they didn't come about organically, let's just say. Like, there's uh, there's foreign interest groups at play, no matter what's happening. It's a mess. Uh, I do think that the U.S. needs to be involved, but not to the point where our agents are micromanaging everything. The solution is definitely not to incentivize coyotes, to send groups of children to the border. The numbers on that have been skyrocketing ever since the beginning of this year. Another non-solution is to send more money into the governing bodies of these countries. If the money didn't get to the people in Puerto Rico after Hurricane Maria, you know, that's a territory of the United States. Uh, you know, how can we expect more integrity uh, from an independent government of kind of the same region? As far as the vice president job goes, you know, she's doing her part on the virtue signaling status quo, consider it met. To me, it kind of looks like she's playing this game. To, like, this is not a serious job for her. I've never seen her serious. And that's not, not a bad thing. I mean, uh, that's okay that she's so jolly and joviant and joyful and whatever the other joy words <laughs> the point is that she doesn't seem to be taking it seriously like she's not realizing that you know this affects it's all sort of right now like yay socialism you know young people like me i'm just gonna smile and be the history we barely see her on tv in terms of you know, her speaking publicly, possibly because she's second and in the shadow, that's fine. But as far as actual real work, if she went to the border, that would have been a good statement. If she wanted to unite the country, give at least that to conservative side of the country. Go to the border, show up, do your job. Even if it's just showing up and making a speech, that would have been at least something. But leaving to another country, that's like a cop out. Yeah, so it's a question of what it takes to be successful in that position. Like when, when I mentioned status quo, you know, it's not the status quo we would necessarily want. A chance for her to make a name for herself, uh, unfortunately, all she has to do is uh, continue doing what she's doing. But this is, this is really important because she's viewed as, you know, Biden's potential heir. Uh, if hopefully he makes it to the end of the term, she's likely to be a candidate for the Democratic Party. Yeah. You know, she like it's a serious job. You know, this is a chance for her to prove herself. And as it's turning out, uh, if she can't handle the heat, then uh, get out of the kitchen. So for our final story, it seems like the Keystone XL Pipeline project is finally being scrapped for good. The litigation and controversy has been nonstop ever since it was originally proposed in 2008. I think we would do well in sending it off with a rounded review of the main events and think about what we can learn from this whole saga. Uh, so, the Keystone Pipeline. It's an existing pipeline that spans parts of Canada and the US. The XL project would have added a uh, 36-inch pipe connecting the raw material from Alberta, Canada to Steel City, Nebraska, where then it would be connected to the existing network, uh, it would reach refineries, uh, as far as, you know, the Gulf Coast, mainly in Texas. So in 2008, there's a company, a uh, Canadian company called the Trans-Canada Corporation, or TC Energy. Uh, they proposed this project. Uh, in order to give it the green light, it had to go through a process called National Interest Determination, or NID, uh, which invited comments from local and state agencies, tribes, and most importantly, the general public. So essentially, before the presidential permit could be granted, uh, people were allowed to voice their concerns. So that's pretty foolproof, right? Well, this process would delay the project from approval uh, for over three years. 
and uh, beyond that, but we'll, we'll get there. So by the time the EPA was pouring over the environmental impact statement, Canada was doing the same thing with uh, whatever their equivalent of EPA is. Public criticism began to grow. Um, there was a historic act of civil disobedience outside the White House in August 2011, which resulted in the arrest of more than 1,200 demonstrators. Uh, a lot of significant, uh, I guess, worldwide figures spoke out against it. You know, we had former President Jimmy Carter, uh, Archbishop Desmond Sutu, and uh, the Dalai Lama spoke out against this uh, XL pipeline project. So more than, in addition to that, more than 2 million comments were submitted to the State Department during a 30-day um, kind of period where the public could voice their concerns. Uh, some tribes spoke out against it, and that kind of uh, fluctuated throughout the process. But uh, for the most part, government agencies were uh, just kind of took it in stride, and they were, uh, they were looking to figure things out uh, as the project kind of progressed. Uh, something that sparked a great amount of outrage was the routing of the pipeline through one of the world's largest underground sources of freshwater. So that's the Ogallala Aquifier. And this stopped the plans completely. TC Energy was forced to revise their route. Uh, they resubmitted the application in May 2012 with a different, um, trying to kind of go around a big part of the aquifer. But it's huge. It's uh, It looks like it spans at least three states. Well, okay, it covers the territory of like six states, but six or seven states. But it's span- like from top to bottom, it's three states. Yeah. If from you were- South Dakota all the way to Texas. Yeah. Yeah. If you were rerouting it, like to go all the way around it, that would. Uh, That'd be quite the detour. Uh, So May 2012, they resubmitted the application having a different route. They didn't totally go around it, but they they missed a big part of it, I guess. Uh, So now it should be noted that this pipeline would, uh, it's not running regular crude oil. It's running oil from tar sands. Uh, So I have a hard time wrapping my mind around it. Maybe you can explain it. No, yeah. Um, So tar sands in comparison to like crude oil, they're known as oil sands are actually a mixture of mostly sand, clay, water, and molasses-like substance called bitumen, which is made out of, according to this article, of hydrocarbons, the same molecules in liquid oil, and is produced is used to produce gasoline and other petroleum products. So they take it out from tar sands and then they refine it like... But it's actually significantly costlier and more difficult than extracting and refining liquid oil. But so the thing is, you have, the thing is it has to be diluted with natural gas in order to make it flow because it's so um, it's so viscous. Mm. You know, that raises a lot of concerns because it makes it so much harder to clean up if there's ever a spill. Uh, but, I mean, all that being said, let's not forget that there's already many hundreds of miles of, uh, of oil pipes underground in the U.S., and some of it is already transforming oil from tar sands. So this will just be an addition so that we can have higher production, um, basically move more weight. Um, our demand for this stuff is still growing, even with all the controversy. Uh, so at this point, the main concerns are centered, I guess, around the environment. There's uh, five main interest groups researching and studying the impacts. Uh, without going into too much detail, um, the, it's the U.S. Army Corps of Engineers, Bureau of Land Management, which the acronym is BLM, uh, the Environmental Protection Agency, Fish and Wildlife Service, and uh, you know smaller state and county agencies. So reports from these groups claim that developing uh, tar sand oil produces a lot of greenhouse gases uh, compared to other fuels. Uh, some worry about how usable the land will be for agriculture and grazing. Others worry about the issue of cleaning up a spill. Still, others say it won't you know it won't create high quality or long lasting jobs. And some of these are legitimate concerns, of course. But if the existing tar sands pipelines have been going smoothly thus far, I mean, wouldn't this new one be the most reliable one? I don't I don't see how this is more concerning than any other one that's been built so far. I guess so. Arguments for the pipeline, you know, we have greater access to the oil that Canada is exporting. Uh, we're less dependent on uh, 
foreign sources like Venezuela and uh, more unstable foreign sources, I guess, uh, it would create 43,000 jobs and it would expand our energy transportation system. So moving back to the timeline, uh, I guess, so the bureaucratic process that's uh, stalling here, uh, it continued with reevaluations and partisan support and opposition. Uh, Republicans uh, were obviously all for this project and they uh, and they were pitted against the president's veto and the EPA's calls for further analysis. So in, in November 2014, the House of Representatives passed a bill that would streamline the approval process, but then uh, it had to go through the Senate. And so they needed one more vote to pass through and uh, they didn't get it. In November 2015, Secretary of State John Kerry denied the permit and this decision would stand until the fourth day of Donald J. Trump's presidency. Uh, Trump signed an executive action that would uh, expedite the approval process. And it basically seemed like things were, you know, after that, it seemed like things were underway. Um, however, environmental agencies brought a couple of lawyers into the room and they began to delay using lawsuits. Uh, two years later, in March 2019, President Trump decided that uh, he didn't need to wait for the approval from all these agencies and he issued uh he basically just went ahead and signed the presidential permit, you know, the permit that was needed from the beginning. However, remember, remember those five groups that were assessing the environmental impacts. Out of those five, the ones that approved the project uh, were now the ones getting sued. And so this was, uh, and so they began to kind of turn on each other. And this delayed the installation of Keystone XL even longer. Uh, finally, we get to 2021, where uh, on his first day in office, President Biden officially revokes the permit that Trump had issued, and basically the process of approval is taken back to square one. Here we are in June 2021. TC Energy have said in a statement on Wednesday that together with the government of Alberta, uh, they decided to end the multi-billion dollar pipeline. And so they've already invested $1.3 billion uh, into this project, but it's just been way too much trouble so far, and uh, they're finally calling it quits. So what do you think is going to be the fallout of this decision, I guess? Because it's been over a decade, you know, protests, sit-ins, lawsuits. I'm just, okay, well, $1.3 billion into the project, I mean, at least it went to the people, meaning somebody got a paycheck at the end, right? So whether it's agencies or fees or whatnot, probably our country pocketed a huge amount of that, right? And then this, this money um, went to the people. But I think the biggest fallout of it, at least from what I saw people analyzing this story is that I think it's a loss for the industry, for industry here in America. The reason we're seeing this is because Biden is promising, you know, thousands of jobs in the green sector once that's going to get up and going, once all the grants go through and all the new projects restart. But really, it probably cannot happen without shutting down somewhere, something. You need to redirect people, I guess, from one place to another. When you create jobs, you, especially through government help, you're pulling funding from somewhere else or you're pulling support from somewhere else either way. In this case, it's just a matter of, you know, not approving a decision and all of a sudden, you know, achieving, I guess, a bit of green goals, right? You're, you're getting some green points with, with, with the world and, uh, and so on. But for the people in the industry, uh, it was projected by the company that in 2021, uh, it would produce $1.6 in gross wages. And 11,000 jobs. So now those 11,000 jobs, those are people, families that got to find work somewhere else. So it's taken, uh, you know, it's, it's taken jobs from one set of people with hopes then of creating somewhere else greener jobs. Right. And I think there's, there's a lot to unpack there because just because somebody's losing a job doesn't mean that they're going to want to work in the new job that you're creating. And it's like, it's that conversation about, you know, a lot of the trucking industry is starting to become automated. 
or at least, you know, projections are showing that uh, we're going to begin implementing that technology. And so it's like, oh, we'll just teach those truckers how to code. It's like, well, did they want, like, <laughs> did they want that job? You know, is that something you could even teach them at this point? This was, I think, in the same vein. It's seen as like a battle against big oil. And it's like, well, a lot of people's livelihoods depend on their jobs with big oil. It's more symbolic, I guess, than anything else, because there's already so much oil pipelines. This uh, symbolic victory, I guess, and this virtue signaling, it's, it's emboldened environmentalists everywhere. Um, and now there's calls for Biden to stop production of other Canadian pipelines, you know, namely one in Minnesota being installed by a company called Enbridge. And so, like... It just goes to show you give them an inch, they'll take a mile. Well, that's all for the stories this week. We're so glad you joined us for another episode of Life Ring. Please consider following us on Facebook or Instagram. Just type in Life Ring Podcast. It will come up and you'll be able to you know, follow it. And as always, we would like to remind you that there is no better news on any given day than the good news of Jesus Christ. He died for the sins of the world so that everyone who comes to him would be saved. We encourage you to seek him if you haven't already. Thank you for listening to Life Ring, and we'll see you next week. Music